Before we get started, you know how important self-care is, especially these days, right? That's why after a long night of podcasting, I always head over to see my friends at Magnolia Dental Spa for a facial customized to my skin needs. Yes, that's right. Perfect for anti-aging, acne, hydration, the soothing of the skin. And get this, these facials always include an amazing hand or arm massage. I'm not kidding when I say they always leave me refreshed and ready to take on the next case with all of you. And get this, during the month of March, if you call and book your facial appointment and tell them that Cameron J sent you, you're going to get 20% off. And good news, you do not need to be a dental patient to take advantage of this spa service. So call my friends at Magnolia Dental Spa at 706-607-9772 to book your appointment and be sure to tell them that Cameron J sent you for that discount. Welcome, welcome, welcome back. This episode of Classic City Crime starts right now. A quick reminder. This episode contains conversations surrounding infanticide, violence, and child death, which some people might find hard to hear. As always, listener discretion is advised. This week we're going to return to the case of an infant baby boy who was found at Oglethorpe House Dormitory in 1996. He had been stabbed several times and left in a trash can. In part one, we heard from the University of Georgia Police Chief Chuck Horton and Assistant Police Chief Connie Sampson. And you'll remember that they recalled this horrible discovery that they were called to in a dormitory basement bathroom. We also took a look at the psychology of the case with Dr. Deborah Cowart-Steckler, who actually answered some of your questions this week. So if you have questions for her, head on over to Facebook. CCC Insiders is where it's at. You can ask questions, and she's going to respond. Now, I've got to admit it. There has been no case that I've researched quite like this one. It's heartbreaking on so many levels. You know, there's sorrow for the life that's unrealized. There's the inability to understand, if we even can, might I add, what might have led to this tragic end. There are the questions of how it might have been avoided or where the mother, father, or person responsible might be. And of course, what does justice look like in a case so complex all these years later even? Now, these are the things that have kept me up at night and the issues that led, of course, to my reluctance to covering this case in the first place. But through the heartache of learning the details, through the pain that I heard in Chuck's voice, I ultimately want to say that I'm grateful to those of you who continued to push me about talking about Jonathan Foundling. And you'll remember... This is the name that was given to the infant boy. I'm hopeful that one day, in some way, this community, we might hear that the case is closed. Now, as always, I thought this was going to be one special episode, but yet again, I was able to connect with someone who has a story that I just couldn't pass up sharing with you. Not only does this person's account help us better understand the scene of the crime, but it also helps us realize just how involved the investigation into Jonathan Foundling's death was. Eric Jackson, and I was the residence life coordinator for the Hill community there at the University of Georgia. 
So some of you might find this interesting. I actually found Derek's name because it was his name listed as the person who called 911 all those years ago when baby Jonathan was found. I found this through the open records request and I figured that if anyone, he might be able to help us understand what was discovered but also how it altered the university community, one thing I always like to take a look at. Now, you can only imagine how many Derek Jacksons were living in and around Athens in 96. Now, to complicate finding him further, there were four Derek Jacksons enrolled at UGA that year. And, get this, two of the four worked in student housing. I hope you're starting to see how much of a puzzle this can be sometimes. It was hard to get it exactly right, but I'm glad that we did because, in true typical classic city crime fashion, I just decided to send him a letter. I did not want to call and bring up over the phone what I'm sure are painful memories for Derek, even all these years later. He received the letter, he called, we talked, and now you're going to hear it. You see, Derek remembers that day in 1996 very well. Just another day working in resident life until it wasn't. It was ahead of the start of the semester, uh, and so it wasn't Actually, we were just going finishing quarters, but our students were starting to move back in, uh, kind of a normal uh, work day um, in that you know early spring semester, and so we were um, just kind of yeah everything was normal as can be. Um, somewhere probably early afternoon, I can't remember the time. Probably uh, I got a call. My actually my secretary got a call down at the office which is in the Hill Hill building, Hill Residence Hall, and said somebody found a baby in the trash can. And I was like, I, I didn't believe it. You know, I was like, oh, surely not. I mean, it, something else. You know, just, So I asked my head custodian um, to go up there and check it out. I said, Lizzie, why don't you go see what's going on? And um, she calls back in a few minutes, and she had gone up to O'House and, and called and said, hey, Derek, this is a baby. And I'm like, okay, I'll be there in a second. You know, I basically ran up the hill. And I just wanted to jump in here for a moment, if I can. Many of you were curious, was this before the start of the semester? But we now know that students had already begun arriving back on campus. He actually went into a bit more detail about this. So let's take a listen. You know, the, the buildings were open and there were students around, but it wasn't the, we hadn't started the actual, you know, classes yet. So it would have been kind of in that time period when there's, you know, it, it usually a day or two or three days, depending upon how, you know, what the time of the semester or start of the year is, that students are allowed to come back into the building, but there's not everybody's back yet. I mean, it's still, it's kind of a progression of, you know, days of people coming back in. And some people come back because they have jobs. Some people come back just to get away from home, you know, finish up with Christmas. And um, and so that's, that's sort of kind of the, time period that we were in at that that junction. It's important to understand the time that this occurred, but also the security. Who would have had access to the dorms during this time? Further, who would have had knowledge of that basement bathroom? I asked Derek if he recalled anything about this, and he did. There were only two ways of getting in the building. One is going through the main front desk, and you you swipe your card, and you pass by the, the front desk worker, and you know, there's a, as secure as a student can make it without, you know, a student could sit there and hold the door open and let anybody in, but the desk worker that's there 24 hours a day would have said, hey, stop, or whatever. You know, some accountability would have been there. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a door, there was a door at that point in time back in 96 
off the basement, kind of on the north, uh, kind of the northwest part of the building, faced west, but it came out off the loading dock, and there was a key door, the only door in the building that you would use a key for, and that would have been used by our uh, you know, um, custodial maintenance staff that would have needed to be able to come in and out of the loading dock door, uh, kind of a mm-hmm. you know, Now, this might lead some of us to think that perhaps this was really a student, someone in some sort of position maybe who had a key like a maintenance staffer or the cleaning crew, or perhaps someone not connected to any of the aforementioned possibilities. But there's always the chance that if it's none of these scenarios, that someone made it past that front desk without being stopped or questioned, or that someone found that key-only door unlocked, maybe? I don't really know, but we might never know the truth until the case is closed. As you can imagine, Derek Jackson quickly became more than just a resident life coordinator that day. He became more also than the person who made the 911 call. He actually, in his own way, helped facilitate a lot of the work that the UGA police was doing in interacting with the students. And get this. He's very complimentary of the job that those police officers did. You know, it was run very well. I mean, it, it, to a point where I was surprised that we we never uncovered, as far as I know, the person that did it. You know, and that's, I, I believe it's still unsolved. And, you know, it, it baffled the police department. It was both campus as, uh, as well as the Athens-Clark County police were involved. And, um, you know, I know they interviewed students. I was there kind of with the police at times kind of working with the, the staff of the building or, um, you know, a lot of people were just, you know, asking a lot of, you know, kind of how can this happen kind of questions like where, what's the, why haven't somebody shown up? And then it, then it became sort of a, you know, kind of people looked around like who, who could have done this, you know, kind of a deal. And uh, was it one person or was it two people? You know, I think there was some, you know, back and forth questions of could this, person who just delivered this baby have done it themselves or did they have somebody else there that was you know um, helping them support them I mean you think about that as a a, a person delivering a baby what would be your abilities to physically be able to do what was done Um, it's, it's sort of those were sort of the questions that were being asked and then to leave the crime scene leave the site and never get you know, a medical, as far as, you know, I think one of the things that police did was work with the hospitals and doctors, obviously put the word out saying that somebody shows up, we want to talk to them kind of a deal. And to have, um, as far as I know, no one ever show up at a medical facility um, in the in the vicinity, um, anywhere really that I know of that would have had signs of having just delivered a baby and not, no one ever, to my knowledge, ever materialized. And so, they asked a lot of student questions, obviously, and this was, you know, building of about 500 students, um, mm-hmm. about 50-50, 50% men, 50% women, and so there's not a lot of names on a roster, right? I mean, this is a pretty quick and succinct beginning, you know, when you look at, okay, who's who has access to the building? Um, and, you know, the door, the back door, the, the door that was was locked, as far as we know, and so they would have would have had to come through the building through the front door either as a resident or somebody with a resident is sort of the, the natural, you know, um, suspicion basically. And was there anyone at this time that you recall? I mean, I'm sure not, but that worked for, you know, the residence halls or that was a student that was pregnant one day, you know, and suddenly was not, I mean, that's nothing you recall. Nothing we recall. No. 
I want us to take a brief pause here to breathe, reflect, and listen to a word from our sponsors because when we come back, Derek's going to help us better understand the crime scene. And we're going to discuss some different laws that are on the books now, how they've changed, and how they might have made a difference back then. Could this all have really been prevented? Well, nobody really knows, do they? We'll be right back. This episode of Classic City Crime is brought to you by the law offices of J. Lee Webb right here in Athens. With over 25 years of experience and rated as one of the top three attorneys in Athens, J. Lee Webb is the defense attorney you want on your side. Being arrested can be a stressful, even confusing situation. That's why J. Lee Webb works closely with clients to help them understand the charges they face, their rights, their options, and the consequences that might accompany conviction. So, if you ever find yourself in trouble, which we hope not, regain some control over the situation by giving my friends at the law offices of J. Lee Webb a call at 706 705-5122. From criminal law and Title IX and Code of Student Conduct issues to personal injury, they've got you covered at www.athenscriminallawyer.com. Thanks again to my friend Lee Webb for sponsoring this episode. We could not do it without the support of our listeners and partners like him, So, if you're interested in partnering with us for future episodes, or if you have a specific case you'd like to sponsor us covering, now's a good time to email us at classiccitycrime at gmail.com. With that, let's return to Derek Jackson. He worked at the University of Georgia in 96, and he made that 911 call that would change the lives of investigators 26 years ago. A reminder, the next few moments could be hard for some listeners to hear. Listener discretion is advised. One thing that I had a hard time understanding and that news reports never really seem to address and that many of you seem to wonder too was this. Was baby Jonathan delivered in the basement bathroom or in a dorm room upstairs and brought to the bathroom? Perhaps nowhere on the premises and brought to the trash can afterwards? I'll be honest, from what I initially heard and read, I thought that it might be the case that he had been born elsewhere, but... Derek Jackson was there, and I wasn't. And some of his recollections have me rethinking the entire set of circumstances. Here's our exchange as I tried to make sense of the tragedy, and I hope it'll help you make sense of it a little more, too. You know, my memory is a little... There was blood, a lot of blood. Not just in the, in the stall, basically. So you, it was, it, then there was blood on the... You know, high enough up that it was, wasn't... It wasn't just probably a natural birth, you know. And then looking into the trash can, I never, I didn't touch the baby, you know, sort of. But I could tell that the baby was harmed, you know. Um, and so, yeah, it was. saying, though, that there was blood outside of the trash can, too? Yes. You know, as I think back 26 years, I helped. When everything was all said and done, my boss and I, we cleaned the site. We, we were the, kind of, the, this is way before the days of, you know, kind of a, a crime scene cleanup team or whatever. We, the three of us, just we ended up cleaning the site, and there was a lot of more blood than there should have been. And you said that blood was in the trash can, but also in the stall in the bathroom. Yeah, so, yeah, that bathroom kind of opened. It was a had a sink and a stall, basically, kind of a pretty 
relatively small bathroom, um, and there would have been, you know, blood up on the wall and on the on the stool itself, on the back of the stool and um, on it the was, floor. Was it single use or like multi use? You know, my memory of it is that it was a, it was you could push the door open, so I, I don't believe you could latch it from my memory. But it wasn't a very large bathroom. It wasn't. There was no shower there. It was just basically a bathroom. If you were down there going to the laundry room or, you know, playing in the, the, the rec area, if you were down there, you could have, you know, that would have been there to support the bathroom. There was also um, maintenance staff and custodial staff rooms down there, break room, work room, uh, supply rooms. And, um, you know, but it, re it really wasn't, it was, there was no residents living on that floor. Uh, and so it was out of the way, but it was still, it was right off the elevator lobby right there would have students would have come down the stairs and would have been right there the, the bathroom i'm going to leave the next portion of my interview with derek out of this out of respect for the memory of jonathan foundling but in short i asked him were there any other signs other than blood that would indicate a birth had occurred in the bathroom his answer no he also made one thing very clear it was obvious that baby Jonathan had not been alive for days or weeks, but perhaps only hours, if not minutes. We don't really know, but we might one day soon. So, you've heard law enforcement officials talk about how this case forever changed their life, how it still brings tears to their eyes all these years later. You know, too, how hard it was for me to even cover the case. But I can't imagine what it must have been like for Derek Jackson back in 1996. In fact, he spoke to me at the end of our call about how this really changed things for him. In fact, he and his wife were expecting a newborn just one month later. Yeah, I've been in student life. I've worked here at Kansas State University and I've run residence halls for 30 some years and I've seen tragedies, you know, I've seen others. But this is one that I remember greatly. Um, and the, the you know, the irony of this is my oldest daughter was born about a month and a half later than this, than when this baby was found. And so wow. it was one of those, you know, it hit me home. It hit, hit my, hit me at home in the sense that here I am dealing with this and my wife is pregnant and, you know, I have a baby that was, she was born on the, the 19th of February. So pretty close to home, both time and place. So, like when you sent that letter to me yesterday, when I got it in the mail, I knew exactly it was 26 years ago. I mean, it was just, mm -hmm. you know, it just kind of came back to, you know, I don't think about it a lot, at, you know, obviously now later in my life, but um, I do, you know, it was a personal thing for me because of where I was at in my phase of life and getting ready to have my own first baby. I want to say thank you to Derek for responding to my letter, for sharing this story so vividly with all of you, and for helping me clarify some outstanding questions that I know we all had. But let's end with perhaps the most pressing question for all of us now. For me, perhaps not even the who did this, but the why. Why did this have to happen? Could anything have stopped it at all? In 2002, the state of Georgia recognized a need to allow mothers even more options when it comes to these type of cases. In fact, these laws begin happening all across the country as a direct response to cases of child abandonment and infanticide, like the case of Jonathan Foundling. They're called safe haven laws. In some states, they actually refer to this as the baby Moses law. And what this policy does is decriminalizes the act of leaving 
unharmed infants with private people or entities so that the child practically becomes a ward of the state. But here's the sad part now. This law did not exist in the state of Georgia until 2002, meaning in 1996 there was no option like this at all that existed for the mother or father of baby Jonathan. Now, we also would have to assume that if the law did exist then, that there was knowledge of the pregnancy or an acceptance of the pregnancy, as Dr. Steckler pointed out. So here's what portions of the law state, quote, The act defines the term medical facility as, quote, any licensed general or specialized hospital, institutional infirmary, health center operated by a county board of health, or facility where human births occur on a regular and ongoing basis, which is classified by the Department of Community Health as a birthing center, but shall not mean physicians or dentists' private offices. In Georgia, a mother shall not be prosecuted for leaving her newborn child in the physical custody of an employee, agent, or member of the staff of a medical facility, provided that the newborn is no more than one week old, and that the mother shows proof of her identity, if available, to the person with whom the newborn is left. There's also a note here about providing her name and address. It continues, the mother who leaves her newborn at the medical facility shall not be prosecuted for the crimes of cruelty to her child, contributing to the delinquency, unruliness, or deprivation of her child, or abandonment of her dependent child. It goes on, a medical facility which accepts a child left by its mother shall be reimbursed by the Department of Human Services for all reasonable medical and other reasonable costs associated with the child prior to the child being placed in the care of the department. Once a medical facility reports that a child has been placed in its custody, the Department of Human Services has a duty to investigate the details of the child left with the medical facility and report the same to the General Assembly. The report shall also include the desirability and cost-effectiveness of a dedicated toll-free telephone line for providing information to and answering questions from the public and employees and staff members of medical facilities concerning the child. So as you can see here, they're not only talking about what happens and what won't happen in regards to prosecution, they're also looking to collect data and provide information. Let's go on to the next part here. The medical facility shall notify the Department of Human Services at the time the child is left at the medical facility and at the time the child is medically ready for discharge. Upon notification that the child is medically ready for discharge, the Department of Human Services shall take physical custody of the child within six hours. The department shall then promptly bring the child before the juvenile court. Medical facilities and their employees, agents, and staff members shall not be liable for civil damages or subject to criminal prosecution for failure to discharge their duties unless they negligently treated the child that was taken into custody. End quote. I've thought about this law and laws like it a lot, and I wonder if it might have made a difference. Regardless of where you stand on this issue we're going to talk about next, access to abortion is also an important aspect of this case to look at. According to some research I did, here in Georgia, they begin modifying laws as it relates to abortion in the late 70s, and they modeled this legislation after the American Laws Penal Code, and what that penal code said was that abortion could and should be sought if, quote, there is a substantial risk 
that the continuance of the pregnancy would gravely impair the physical or mental health of the mother, or that the child would be born with grave physical or mental defect, or that the pregnancy resulted from rape, incest, or other felonious intercourse, end quote. But get this, in 1968, Georgia decided that incest could not be an exception in the case of abortion. By 2000, abortion was banned in the state after 22 weeks. So, you can only imagine how these laws, restrictions, and of course the attitudes of public opinion could all contribute to a woman not seeking this option, not to mention, we all know, regardless of where you stand on the issue, that this is a very hot-button topic here in the Bible Belt. We could spend hours trying to understand this case, couldn't we? But we can't. I will never know what was going through the mind of Jonathan's mother, father, or the person responsible for his death. I'll never understand what could have led to this tragic end. But here's what I can understand. I can understand why this case remains on the hearts of so many Athenians. I can understand why it still brings tears to Police Chief Horton's eyes, and why Derek Jackson has not forgotten about the case all these years later. Why? Because little Jonathan's life, it was never realized. He wouldn't grow up. He wouldn't go to school, graduate, have a family of his own, or have people left to speak for him. None of that will ever be his. And apart from those here in the Athens community, Jonathan really has no one left to speak for him. We are his voice, and we are his family. And we should never, ever forget about what happened to him. And may it challenge us all to do a better job of supporting mothers, particularly in the beginning of pregnancy, in whatever choice they might make, so that something like this might never happen again. To anyone with information on this case, please be sure to contact the University of Georgia Police Department at 706-542-2200. The case remains very active. To every single person that reached out to me about covering this case, thank you. I know that I'm better for it, and it's my hope that justice for Jonathan will in some way soon be realized. Thank you so much for being here, and stay tuned for more. I'm Cameron J. Classic City Crime is hosted, written, and produced by me, Cameron J. Original design by Kyle Kazaya and research assistance by Elizabeth DeRusso. You can find us online at ClassicCityCrime.com, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Classic City Crime, and be sure to connect with us by email at ClassicCityCrime at gmail.com if you have a story looking to be told. Thank you so much. We'll see you right back here very, very soon. Stay well, everybody.